0: All right, before we get started this evening, let's bow our heads together, have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure that we're spiritually prepared in fellowship, ready to study the Word this evening. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful this evening that we have the freedom to come together to worship you, to study your Word, to reflect upon the truths of your Word without government, uh, interference, Father, the freedoms we have were uh, purchased on the field of battle by uh, those who were willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, those who served in this nation's military from the time of its, uh, uh, its beginning during the war for independence from Britain up to the present conflicts, and Father, we are indeed grateful for all those who have served and who are serving. We continue to pray for those who are on our A prayer list that are from this congregation or known by people in this congregation who are serving in the military now and serving overseas in Afghanistan or Iraq or any number of other places around the world. And we pray for those that you would keep them safe and that those who are believers would be a faithful, consistent witness for the truth of your word among those with whom they serve. Father, we continue to pray for uh, the leadership in this nation. We pray for our president. We pray for those in Congress. We pray for their salvation. If they are not saved, if they do not know the truth, we pray that they would uh, come to understand the truth, If they are uh, set in ways that are hostile to freedom, to the constitution of this country, to changing the very fabric and, and uh, depth of this country. We pray that their uh, plans would be uh, foiled and that... Uh, they would come to understand the error of their ways and that you would remove them from office. Father, we are thankful we have your word and that it is in the light of your word that we see truth, as the psalmist said, and that it is only in the light of your word that we can see truth. All other systems are just man the creature trying to make sense of his world without consulting the creator. And so, Father, we pray that as we uh, study your word this evening, especially as we get into this a wonderful and tremendous epistle to the Romans. We pray that you would would help us to understand these things and to that they would clearly enlighten us as to the realities of our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to begin our study in Romans. I've given you some background information that I'll just sort of talk my way through this evening as we orient to uh, this great epistle. This is thought to be the finest of all of Paul's epistles, and it is in the epistle to the Romans that Paul sets forth the most uh, logical, the most orderly and organized presentation of the foundational doctrines of Christianity, especially in relationship to the essence of God in terms of his righteousness and justice. We'll spend a lot of time studying that particular, uh, the particular Greek word translated righteousness and in some cases Justice, they're very close concepts in uh, the vocabulary of the Bible, both in terms of the Old Testament and New Testament. The word groups that are uh, translated as either righteousness or justice are the same. In the Old Testament, the verb root is sadak, and in the New Testament, the uh, noun root is decay. And so you have various forms of either one of those words but they can refer to either the the, uh, absolute standard that is inherent within God's character, he is the ultimate standard for reality, or it refers to the application of that standard. When it talks about the standard, it talks about righteousness. When it talks about the application of that standard, the idea is justice. And so we know that there is perfect righteousness because it exists in in God's essence, and His the application of that is perfect justice. So even though we may not see a righteousness or justice within our human experience, within the realm of creation, we do have that in the essence of God as an ultimate reference point. And so we can know what righteousness is and what justice is. And I think because we are all created, all human beings are created within the image and likeness of God, even though that image has been uh, distorted and corrupted by the uh, sin of Adam. Nevertheless, there is something deep within the very core of man that recognizes that things are not as they ought to be, and they have a sense that things ought to be somehow different, that there ought to be perfection, that there ought to be something where there is not... uh, Uh, Suffering. There ought to be an experience where there's no sorrow, where there's no uh, inequities, where there's no injustice. Uh, Yet, because we live in a fallen world, we can't experience that, and we will never experience that. And the failure to recognize that on the part of many people is what leads them into the trap of utopianism. And we see a lot of examples of that today in various uh, philosophical views that uh, uh, dominate uh, politics today, both in terms of for other nations as well as uh, various movements within the United States, that we the goal of government, the goal of human institutions is not to provide protection. It is rather to defend righteousness and to provide an environment wherein righteousness can flourish and to the best of its ability within a fallen uh, system, but it is that very idea, that very question, of whether or not there is such a thing as the fallenness of man, the depravity of man. We'll get into that in the first uh, couple of chapters of Romans. Whether there is this inherent flaw to the to human nature, that is at the very core of the of the uh, of the challenges and the disagreements between various worldviews. And those who believe that man is essentially flawed are uh, basically Christians. Others think of, of sin as some sort of cosmetic problem, uh, something on the order of a disease, but not a constitutional defect. And that is the distinction between biblical Christianity and all of the other world religions. This is why biblical Christianity emphasizes the grace of God, because they, in understanding the sin problem as a constitutional defect that man cannot overcome on his own, there has to be an external solution that is totally independent of human ability. And so if you have a weak view of sin, and there are certain Christian uh, denominations and certain Christian theologians who have a very diluted uh, ideas about sin, uh, and so the more diluted your view of sin, the more you think of man as perfectible. And if man as an individual is perfectible, then society is perfectible. And when you think of society as perfectible, then you think that it, somehow it is up to mankind and the institutions uh, of mankind to perfect uh, the human race and to bring in some kind of, uh, of utopia. And we'll get into some of those different ideas as we... Uh, go through the, our study of Romans and make application in different areas. Uh, but that, that shows that, that uh, what's important for us to note at this point by way of introduction is the importance of understanding uh, righteousness and justice, which is the very core of the message in, in Romans. So when you look at Romans, first thing we usually talk about whenever you talk about a, uh, a book of the Bible is the uh, authorship. The authorship is the Apostle Paul. Paul claims to be the author in Romans 1, verse 1, and even though there are those who in other books uh, that claim to be written by Paul doubt Pauline authorship, uh, there's uh, very few left in the world today uh, that doubt Pauline authorship. Whenever we look at the topic of authorship, usually this is broken down into two categories of evidence. Internal evidence refers to uh, evidence within uh, the epistle or the book itself. External evidence has to do with outside sources, outside uh, references. Uh, So first of all, we'll look at internal evidence. You always start with Scripture. Always start with God in any system of thought. You you start with ultimate reality and work your way out. Whenever you're dealing with Scripture, you start with the Scripture, the Scripture's testimony regarding itself. This is not a circular argument, but uh, it is a case of a witness. You go to the witness and you ask the right probing questions of a witness, and their answers are either going to uh, be consistent and give you, give you corroboration of their basic testimony or there's going to be some flaws or some inconsistencies that may cause you then to look at other uh, other areas of uh, uh uh to validate or invalidate uh the claim and so we're going to take the scripture at its word that it claims to be the word of God written by by God through men Using their personalities and their gifts, their vocabularies, their talents, their background, in order to express, uh, the eternal truths that God wishes to communicate to man, uh, in a way that doesn't violate their individual human nature or personality on the one hand, but on the other hand, uh, it communicates exactly what God intended to communicate. And it does it in a way that ex- that inspiration extends down to the very uh, words of scripture not just the words themselves but the forms of scripture whether a word is a, an heiress tense a present tense a future tense uh, th- this is part of divine inspiration Rather, whether whether uh, whether or not one word is used or another word is used is part of uh, divine inspiration uh, sometimes it may be that one word is used over against another word simply because of the author's uh, personality or his style, but that should be the last resort. Uh, Our first resort should be that this is the word that God uh, chose because he wanted to emphasize something distinct about this word as opposed to this other word. So we always start with the assumption that if the Bible claims to be written by someone, that we're going to assume that's true until we find uh, some evidence that perhaps may contradict that, and we're going to assume that when it claims to be from God, that it is indeed from God. So internal evidence that uh, we have for the Apostle Pauls, as I stated already in the first verse, it claims Pauline authorship. Second, the vocabulary that we have in Romans, and the way the, the theological arguments are developed are are consistent with what Paul Uh, Paul says in other epistles, such as Ephesians, Colossians, which we'll start on Sunday morning when I finish our study in Kings, uh, um, Galatians. These are uh, books that are similar in uh, doctrinal content, similar in makeup to Romans, especially Galatians. Galatians was the first epistle that Paul wrote, and Galatians, we see his thinking the, the thinking that's in Romans developed in a much shorter book. But in, in Galatians, especially in Galatians chapter 2, we see his explanation of justification uh, by faith, and that it is not by works. In Galatians 2.21, nevertheless, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, uh, but by the works of righteousness. It's also consistent with what he says in Philippians Uh, Chapter three, and so this idea of justification, which is part of our understanding of the righteousness of God, uh, is consistent in Romans, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, all of these other epistles. So, uh, the the language, the style, the way he he logically develops his subject is all consistent with what we know of as the Apostle Paul. That kind of covers the second and third points under eternal. Internal evidence, uh, the fourth point under there is the author states that he is familiar with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Paul was familiar with them they were they were close This is stated in Romans chapter sixteen verse three uh, and also comparing that with Acts chapter eighteen uh, verses two to three. The author mentions in Romans chapter fifteen verses twenty five to twenty seven that he is in the process of taking up a collection of money to take back to Jerusalem and for the support of the uh poor among the believers in Jerusalem. We know that this was something that the apostle Paul was involved in on his third missionary journey. So when we take that statement in Romans 15 and compare it with Acts 19:21, uh statements in Acts twenty one through 5, 21:15, 17 and uh 21:17 through 19, along with 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 5, and 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 12, and 9, 1 through 5, we know that this fits what we know of what the Apostle Paul was doing on his third uh, missionary journey. We believe he wrote uh, the epistle to the Romans from Corinth. And so um, this would indicate uh, that... Um, that this is uh, this fits with that that scenario and that plan. Uh the next point, uh the author claims to be a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin as was the apostle Paul originally known as Saul of Tarsus and he makes his claim in Romans 11:1 as compared with Philippians chapter 3 verse 5. And lastly, I point out that the author plans to visit Rome as did the apostle Paul. So when we compare these statements in Acts one, uh, ten to thirteen and fifteen thirty-two with Acts nineteen twenty-one, we see again that that everything that it, the things that are stated in Romans that have to do with uh, that are personal to the author of this epistle, that they are consistent with what we know about the life and ministry of the apostle Paul and the chronology that we see in the book of Acts, in terms of external evidence. Uh, the apostolic fathers. Now that's a technical term. In church history, you look at the apostles as those who were, uh, the, who were the, uh, those chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostolic age includes those who were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ and their immediate associates. That would include Luke and Mark and uh, those mentioned specifically in the New Testament, Titus, Timothy, Uh, That was the apostolic age, and that extends up till the end of uh, the uh, canon period, the closing of the canon in about 95 or so, somewhere in that uh, that area. However, that sort of overlaps a little bit with the next uh, period that is talked about in church history, which is the period of the apostolic fathers. They're called apostolic fathers because in many cases they knew the apostles or they came to salvation under the ministry of one of the apostles, whether it was John or Paul or, or one of the other apostles, and but yet they're a second generation leader uh in the early church. They do not have the benefit of divine inspiration or apostolic authority for themselves. So we see also when you read their Uh, their epistles, for example, if you read uh, 1 Clement, Clement was the pastor of the church in Rome at the end of the first century and you just see a huge difference in the content of of doctrine between something like Romans or Hebrews or Galatians and what Clement writes. And why is that? It's because Clement isn't writing under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. He is just writing as a pastor or any other pastor within the history of Christianity. So there's a huge distinction, uh, between the ministry of the apostolic fathers and the apostles. And the apostolic fathers are often confused. I mean, they're talking about being saved when you get baptized and all kinds of other things. I mean, sometimes you read them and you, you just want to, you know, n- take out your fist and knock on their skull a little bit and go, didn't you listen? And it, it, it takes two or three generations to work out, um, the doctrinal corrections that are necessary after the apostles go off the scene. Because there's, there, then that just reveals the difference between the active presence and ministry of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles and that that disappears when they, uh, with the death of the last apostle. Uh, the Apostle John. So, and under external evidence, we know that the early apostolic fathers in that first generation after the death of John, Clement of Rome, uh, Ignatius, uh, and Polycarp. Polycarp was a student of the uh, of the Apostle John, and then the second later second century. So this would be getting into your third and fourth generation of leaders after the death of the last apostle Irenaeus, who was the Bishop of Lyon in France. Uh, he writes in the 150, 160, 170 era, uh, Justin Martyr, about that same era, and Hippolytus. Uh, all of these attested to and believed that the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. Uh, furthermore, and we have the one of the oldest uh, canonical collections uh, is called the Muratorian Fragment. This was discovered in um, uh, a couple of centuries ago, and it goes back to, they've dated it to approximately uh, 170. So this is within 80 years of the writing of Revelation, the last book in the New Testament, and the Muratorian Fragment uh, indicates that the Apostle Paul wrote Romans. So we have a lot of evidence within the... Um, first hundred years of the church that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote Romans. And there's no indication that anybody believed anything different. And so um, it wasn't until the 19th century with the influence of 19th, of what's referred to as 19th century Protestant liberalism. It's not until then that you have anybody start to question Uh, whether or not the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. And what happens is they come in, and they basically question everything. They question Mosaic authorship, Pauline authorship, Johannine authorship, Petrine authorship. In fact, in in the most extreme forms of 19th century uh, uh, liberalism, the New Testament isn't even written until uh, the late 2nd century uh, A.D. See, they didn't have all of the data of the Muratorium Canon and other things that we have today. And so they late dated everything because uh, Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. Their their presupposition is totally anti-supernatural. Supernatural Supernatural things can't happen. They never saw anybody raise anybody from the dead. They never saw anybody heal anybody from leprosy. They never saw anybody uh, perform any of these miracles. Uh, That's just that primitive, superstitious mindset of those ancient people. See, they have no respect for the ancients. Whatsoever, of course, unless their name's Aristotle or Plato or Cicero or something of that nature. But they, so they doubt the truth. That's their starting point is they doubt, not only do they doubt the truth of the New Testament or the Old Testament, but they, uh, they're committed to that as a philosophical assumption before they ever start to study. And so the question I've always wanted to ask somebody like that is, well, you don't believe... Um, you don't believe that, that that this is true. What would it take to convince you that Christianity is true? What would it take to convince you that Jesus rose from the dead? What would it take to convince you that Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea? What would it take to convince you that God spoke to Moses? You've got three million witnesses who heard uh, God speak at Mount Sinai. How many witnesses do you think it needs to to validate a claim in in a legal courtroom? It only takes two. Well they had you know one and a half million times that uh, to validate the claims of um, uh, that, that it was God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. So I've often wondered that, uh, but that's their assumption and so uh, from that assumption they're just basically proving the uh, basic problem that they uh, that they have so external evidence internal evidence all is unified that it's the Apostle Paul and then third the the uh, kind of the question that comes to people's minds if you read uh, chapter 16 verse 22 which I didn't put into the notes but if you look at chapter 16 verse 22 at the uh, at the close you have this statement I Tertius who wrote this epistle greet you in the Lord. Well, wait a minute, I thought Paul wrote it. Who's this Tertius? Is that Paul's nickname? No, this is Paul's amanuensis. See, that may be a new word for some of you. That's another word for a scribe or a secretary. And this was typical in the ancient world that someone would write a letter and dictate it to a scribe. Sometimes it was a loose dictation, and the scribe then would have to basically write it uh, the the author would just say, well, write them something, explain, you know, write the righteousness of God and justice and justification and the implications of that, and then, then I'll sign it. That would be a very loose way of doing it. Uh, the Apostle Paul probably dictated this uh, word for word. I'm reminded when I talk about dictation like that, one of the most brilliant minds in the Middle Ages was uh, Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas, if you've ever read, uh, any of his writings, Summa Contra Gentiles, Summa Theologia, or any of his other writings, they are rigorously logical, and they, they takes apart every proposition in terms of all of its possible components. And he would dictate four different books to four different scribes at the same time. He would, go, switching back and forth between four different different books, never losing track of where he was in any any particular book. He would just uh, dictate two or three sentences to this one while he's writing it down. He would turn to the other one and dictate to them and then turn to the third one and dictate to them. Uh, that's the kind of art that we've lost today with computers and uh, things of that nature. Uh, number one, you have to be able to dictate two or three different things at the same time, and then you have to find somebody who can take dictation. So we've got uh, different problems. But Tertius is the uh, scribe who wrote this down. Some people think, well, wait a minute, how does that affect the doctrine of inspiration? Well, the inspiration is coming through the Apostle Paul. He's the one who at the end signs off on it so that as he dictated it to Tertius, Tertius would write it all down, and then the Apostle Paul would go over the uh, final edition making any corrections and then uh, the final uh, copy would be uh, completed by Tertius before it would be sent out. And in many cases, multiple copies of letters like this would be made because uh, in some cases uh, it would be sent not just to one church or one individual, but to multiple churches. In some cases, it might be sent uh, to one church and then they would distribute copies uh, either to the leadership within that church or to other churches. And whenever a church would receive a, a letter like this, a letter to the Romans or in Corinth or uh, Galatia, they would preserve that and then make copies and send that out to other churches in their uh, in their vicinity, or they would make additional copies, but they would preserve that original because this had come uh, directly from the hand of the apostle Paul. Of course, over time, those original documents were lost but there were copies, accurate copies, that were made from those documents. And even if error crept into a copy here or a copy there, which we know happened, uh, if you had 30 copies of something and there were errors in each and every one of those manuscripts, unless they all wrote down the same thing or all heard the same thing wrong, if you were to take all 30 uh, uh, copies and compare them, you could reconstruct the original. For example, if I were to dictate... A letter and have all of you write it down. Then, if I took up those uh, those papers and compared them with one another, one person might have heard an an a n. A-N, another person might have heard an and a and d. And so, but there would be one or two that would have an and instead of an an. And then you could figure out well, 80% of the papers have a n. Two percent have a and d. So the 80% is probably right. Um, you have different ways like that of reconstructing uh, reconstructing the original. So the problem isn't that we might have lost something. That's usually those are the people who always have a glass that's half full. Or yeah, yeah that's half half uh, half full. Whereas people who have a glass that's half half empty, you know, they just look at it a different way. Dr. Ryrie used to say that that it's not that we have 98% of the Bible, it's that we have 102%, and we just have to figure out what the 2% is that shouldn't be there. We have all the original, we just have a few extra words or phrases uh, that that snuck in through a copyist error, and so we have to figure out where those particular errors are, but none of those uh, affect the meaning or the doctrine that's found in any uh, book of scripture, whether it's an Old Testament book or whether it's a, whether it's a New Testament book. So the conclusion is that despite the claims, the attempts of some in the 19th century to debunk Pauline authorship, uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, most of those arguments were seen as very specious and, uh, not, a, not, uh, demonstrable. And so today there is virtually no question about, uh, Pauline authorship. So, when did Paul write this? This Roman numeral 2, the date. This was in 56 to 57, uh, A.D. Probably early winter, January, February of, uh, A.D. 57. It's during Paul's third missionary journey. At that time, he wrote, uh, three epistles. He wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. Now, most of you were here for, uh, uh Acts not too long ago. Paul went on three missionary journeys. At the end of his first missionary journey, how many epistles did he, uh, did he write? You didn't know there was going to be a test tonight. How many epistles did he write at the end of the first missionary journey? One. How many did he write at the end of this, or during the second missionary journey? Two. How many did he write on the third missionary journey? Three. The fourth trip is Rome, and he writes four. It's real easy to remember that. He writes Galatians early, then first and second Thessalonians on the second trip, and he writes 1st and 2nd Corinthians and then Romans on the third trip. And then you have the prison epistles on the fourth trip, uh, Philippians and uh, Colossians. Let me see, what are the, uh, the Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, which is kind of a footnote uh, to Colossians. And I always leave one out. I can't ever remember what that, what that fourth, one, uh, fourth one was. Let me see, uh, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians. I don't know. I'm not going to worry about it right now. Um, so he writes four while he's in Rome, and then he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus after he leaves. Uh, after he leaves Rome. Okay, so he writes this around January to February, uh, uh, fifty seven, uh, after he has written First and Second Corinthians, and he. Um, arrives in Corinth, and somewhere at that time he writes to the church of, of Rome. He knows he's headed there. He states this in the very first chapter, that he is on his way to Rome, but first of all, he believed he had to go to uh, Jerusalem and to fulfill an obligation on his trip to Jerusalem, uh, taking the collection that he had made for the saints uh, back to Jerusalem, uh, doing some other things in Jerusalem before he headed, uh, he headed to Rome. Uh, we'll discuss all of the issues related to that, whether he was right or wrong, when we get there in uh, in Acts. But he was his intent was to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, Pentecost there, and then on to Rome. Uh, he spent Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Philippi in the early spring. Um, uh, so he wrote uh, that Romans. Prior to that, he left uh, Corinth and then headed back north up to um, uh, Philippi, up in the area of uh, uh, Macedonia. It's at the time when Nero is emperor. That's very important to understand in terms of interpretation, especially when we get into uh, the 13th chapter of Romans that talks about the fact that no authority exists uh, apart from uh, the will of God, and that God, as he superintends history, uh, there are times when even uh, evil rulers from our perspective uh, are appointed and God allows them to reign. And nevertheless, because they are the ruler and the foundational principle of authority uh, is there. There is not to be uh, there to be obeyed. Authority is to be respected as a foundational uh, establishment principle. Now, the church in Rome wasn't founded by Paul. Neither was it founded by Peter. We don't know who, who founded the church there. One view is, and it's probably one or a little bit of both. Nobody, nobody knows. It was either. We know from from uh, Acts chapter two that there were Jews from Rome in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and so it is possible that some Jews were saved from Rome, and when they went back to Rome, uh, they proclaimed the gospel in Rome, and a church began. Uh, It's also possible that as Paul traveled on his first and second missionary journeys and as uh, there were uh, Jews in those uh, cities and towns where he went, some of them could have either been traveling from Rome or they could have later traveled to Rome and they could have been uh the source of the gospel first uh, arriving in Rome but it was not Peter as the Roman Catholic Church has asserted Peter was not the founder or the first uh, was neither the founder nor the first pastor of the uh, church in Rome uh Paul got to Rome before Peter did and so he writes this epistle and we're not really sure why he wrote it we can guess because of the nature of what he says that there were questions that were being asked related to understanding uh, foundational doctrines. There were questions being asked about the relationship of works to faith. There were questions related to the necessity of works to salvation. There were questions related to uh, God's plan for the Jews, Jews and Gentiles. And it's obvious from things that are written uh, in this epistle that the congregation in Rome was mixed. It uh, contained both Gentiles, and Jews. So he addresses questions that are asked by uh, both groups related to the nature of this new entity, the church, and its makeup and the impact of that, especially in relationship to uh, God's plan for the Jews. At the end of Romans 8, uh, verse I quote frequently that uh, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul hears the Jew. Well, wait a minute. God promised us the land. God promised us this. God promised us that. Why don't we have it? If God is so faithful, how can you be convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God? We've been separated from the love of God. What's going on? And so Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the logical uh development of his theme of righteousness righteousness towards the gentiles righteousness towards all mankind developed in the first uh first eight chapters and then in chapters 9 through 11 showing that God's righteousness is vindicated in his dealings with uh Israel uh and and um, eventually all Israel will be saved uh Paul begins in Romans 9 saying that all of the um Covenants and promises belong to the Jews, and they're never taken from the Jews, and that eventually all Israel will be saved. Romans chapter uh, chapter eleven, and um, and so that fits within that context. And then uh, everything shifts in Romans twelve, dealing with the application of God's righteousness into the life of the of the individual believer. In terms of the historical background, I just put a little bit down here in terms of. Uh, understanding the history of Rome. There are some great websites out on the Internet that have lots of information about Roman history. Roman history, as fascinating as it is, is not uh, part of our study on the epistle to the Romans, uh, only insofar as it touches on uh, the content of the epistle. The focus is on the righteousness of God, not the unrighteousness of Rome. Uh, Rome was founded in uh, 753 B.C. by uh, general agreement today, plus or minus a little bit. Uh, There are various legends. There's not a lot of hard data about how uh, Rome was founded. Uh, There were the Etruscans that were in the area and some other uh, groups that settled on the hills uh, that are made up the seven hills of the city of Rome. And uh, there, the tradition has it that uh, Aeneas fled there after Troy was destroyed. He was a Trojan. He fled to the Italian peninsula. His descendants uh, were Romulus and Remus. They were not raised as uh, uh, by a wolf. They were uh, part of his, uh, his his legacy, and they had a falling out. Romulus killed Remus, and so when Romulus became the first king of Rome, um, that date is marked as April 21st, 753, otherwise known as San Jacinto Day. Just wanted to see if everybody was still awake and listening. Uh, he became the first king of Rome. And so the first period of Roman history, three basic periods to remember. It's the pre-republic period or the monarchy period, then the period of the republic, and then the period of the empire. The pre-republic period or the period of the monarchy was from 753 until 510 B.C. Uh, The monarchy uh, had a number of different problems, including typical problems of monarchy in terms of uh, tyranny and oppression of the people. And so with the death of the last king in 510, those who were among the aristocracy who made up the Senate of Rome uh, uh, swore that there would never be another king and that it would be ruled by the Senate, which is the founding, uh, the beginning of the phrase, uh, Senatus Populus Ke Romanus, the Senate and the people of Rome. And that became the standard uh, abbreviation uh, for the Roman Republic, Uh, It's during this time that Rome begins to expand outside of the Seven Hills, beyond its basic walls, conquers the neighboring Etruscans and Greek uh, colonists on the uh, Italian peninsula, expands into North Africa with treaties with Egypt, uh, goes through a couple of different wars, the Punic Wars with the Carthaginians, eventually defeating them, expands westward into Spain, uh, northward into Gaul, uh, and eventually, into uh, Britain and eastward into the Middle East and the eastern end of the of the Mediterranean, as Rome expanded its wealth and prosperity expanded, and of course, no nation has ever passed the prosperity test, and so they had all of the problems that came with prosperity, they had an increase in vice and arrogance and uh, self-centeredness and all of the things that went along with that, the violence in the, in the Colosseum. But at the same, on the other hand, they had tremendous, wonderful accomplishments and they uh, provided a tremendous legacy of culture. And by culture, I don't mean what some people think of in terms of high culture, but in terms of law, Roman law provides the foundation for Western civilization down through the present. But what made Roman law great in my belief was uh, when Christianity comes into the Roman Empire and it modifies the, the some of the cruelty and some of the other aspects that were present in uh, in, in Roman law, and that this it's really Christianity that allows Roman civilization, the good side of Roman civilization, to continue. And if you just think about this historically, that no pagan culture has ever really had an enduring or lasting value. But what happens when Christianity comes into Western civilization in conjunction with uh, the thinking of, of the Greeks and the Romans, and I'm not talking about just an assimilation here, but I'm arguing that actually it's Christianity that allows uh, what's good and beneficial of those systems uh, to have endured. And these become the foundation of Western civilization, which is why when you get into prophecy and we start talking about the revived Roman Empire, and people start asking, well, what about the United States? I always thought that was a silly question. The the toes in Daniel, the, the feet uh, and toes that are made up of iron and clay, the iron represents elements from the old Roman Empire, and the clay represents elements from that are new that are joined with the old Roman empire and it those the the iron elements there uh has to do with that which has continued and survived through the period when rome basically uh, has fallen apart and that includes all of western civilization from south america to north america to western uh western europe all of our cultural institutions basically are grounded on a combination of Roman law and uh, Old Testament law. And that's what, what makes a difference. So when people ask this specious question about um, whether what's going to happen to the United States, I don't see the United States in prophecy. Well, the United States is on the other side of the world, number one, and number two, it's part of the, Antichrist, the makeup of the Antichrist uh, ten-nation confederacy which is the only thing that, that, uh, that makes sense. Now, whether or not it has a, a great value or not, who cares? It's the Antichrist kingdom. None of those countries are going to be good. None of those are going to be valuable. At, at, at the instant that this nation becomes part of the Antichrist kingdom, folks, if you're a Christian, your patriotism ends on that day. Never thought about that way, did you? At that point in time, the loyalty to the Constitution and government of the United States—if you're still here—I don't think any of you will be. Uh, at that point, your loyalty to this nation, if you're a believer, has to end because that's the issue in the tribulation. But we covered all of that in in uh, in Revelation. So then you have the you have the period of the uh, republic, pre-republic and the monarchy. Then the period of the republic from 510 uh, B.C. to 27 B.C. And it is during this time that you have all of this expansion. You have uh, remarkable um, contributions to culture, not just in the realm of, realm of law, but also in the realm of architecture, in the realm of art, in the realm of of uh, engineering, uh, road building. All of the highways that are built that connect the, the distant points of the Roman Empire become the highways on which the gospel of Jesus Christ will march uh, once the uh, uh, the church is given birth to and it is the unification of all this territory from north africa to the middle east to to western europe under the authority of the roman em- emperor that creates a peace that means that the gospel can spread Throughout that, without worrying about crossing national boundaries, without worrying about uh, being going from one country to another and facing increased opposition in one area or another. And so this is just part of the wisdom of God and the sovereignty of God. As the scripture says, Jesus came in the fullness of times. God provided this perfect uh, historical scenario uh, for the timing of the gospel. The Republic period ended with a series of civil wars, and attempts to seize power by various generals. The lesson there is human politics will always fail. It will never provide protection no matter how great the people are, no matter how how wonderful the system is because of the depravity of man. So there has to be a strong leader. This is what comes in with the uh, 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 granting of the title of Augustus to Octavian uh, when the Senate uh, crowns him as Caesar and he becomes the emperor In 27, that's the beginning of the empire, and it continues in the west until 476 and in the east until 1453. And what destroyed the Roman Empire uh, finally? It was the invasion of those peaceful, loving people of the book, those peaceful Muslims, right? We're we're still fighting them. We've been fighting them ever, ever, uh, ever since and ever since uh, 622 there has been this violent expansion of islam and it hasn't stopped uh, it's pa- paused a couple of times but from charles martel to constantinople to the battle of uh, the naval battle of lepanto all these battles were fought by the west against the attempts by uh, the islamic hordes to take over and capture the west and uh, Rome stood as a bulwark against that uh, until uh, it eventually just sort of collapsed from the weight of its own uh, depravity in 1453. So uh, back to the first uh, century B.C. with the consolidation of power under Octavian, you now have the empire. There are four emperors that are mentioned in the New Testament. Augustus in Luke two one, Tiberius in Luke three one, Claudius in Acts eleven twenty eight and eighteen two, and Nero in Acts twenty five, ten to twelve and twenty seven twenty four. Uh, by the mid first century, the time of the Apostle Paul, Rome is the largest city in the world. It has a population exceeding a million. Just think about that. That's that's a lot of toilets. Think about it logistically. Think about it in terms of running water. They had all of that. They had running water, hot and cold running water. They had a good sewage system. They had all of these different kinds of things that you have to have when you have a million people. But they also had uh, slums. They also had lots of urban problems just like we do today uh, because when you get a bunch of centers together, that's just the kind of thing that happens. The government can't solve all the problems despite what some people think or hope to think. Um, now the church in Rome also had was composed of slave and free. Uh, there were uh, quite a large number of Christians. Tacitus tells us that the number of Christians persecuted under Nero was, quote, an immense multitude. So there was a huge number of Christians in Rome uh in the middle part of the uh first century A.D. And so it is to those believers that that Paul writes. Under Roman numeral four, the occasion there are four clues that Paul gives within the uh, writing of, uh, of Romans, aside from answering their questions. When does he write? That's what I mean by the occasion. What gives rise to his writing this? When does he write it? And the first point is the only time that fits this dis- his description in chapter 15 is his winter stay in Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. Uh, Second, we see that, uh, as Paul writes at the conclusion, he's aware that he's reaching sort of a transition point in his apostolic apostolic ministry. Uh, Third, he expressed a concern about his impending trip to Jerusalem and taking up a collection for the believers there. Uh, Fourth, uh, which is offset there, there's a typo there, somehow I lost the fourth point, Paul is seeking the support of the Roman Christians as he makes his way eventually to Spain. That was his plan to go to Jerusalem, then come back to Rome, and then head further west to Spain. And there's even some tradition that he did make it to Britain, but we can't uh, be sure about any of that. A uh, fifth point has to do with the literary genre. It's a letter. People today, theologians are getting all wrapped around the axle about literary genre, that you have to nail it down into the most minute type of, of writing, and that determines your your hermeneutic. Uh, you know that's just uh, wrong. Hey, we're focusing on the wrong thing. There's a lot of strange things going on today, and that's just one of them. Uh, Roman numeral six. I've got a working outline. I'll wait till next week. We'll cover the whole book of Romans next week. But let me just give you a couple of other things under. Let's say we'll move Roman uh, numeral six to the outline to Roman numeral seven, and Roman numeral six will be key doctrines and terms in the epistle. Uh, to the Romans uh, key words are justice righteousness faith law grace wrath the wrath of God I'll go over those again justice or God is the judge righteous or righteousness uh, faith law uh, works what 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 is work is faith a work some people get all wrapped around the axle on these things uh, grace we're going to get into uh, some things related to that age-old debate over free will versus the sovereignty of God, whether you talk about the uh, early church and its debate between Augustine and Pelagius or the later uh, permutation of it between uh, the Calvinists at the Synod of Dort and the followers of, uh, of uh, James Arminius, who had already died uh, by the time they had the Synod of Dort, um, and people like that or whether you uh, get into uh, other modern permutations of that the whole question of righteousness by faith alone and not by works there is a movement that i have been aware of for the last 20 years it just sort of been on the fringe of my radar because you just can't you just can't focus on everything and i haven't been teaching in paulina uh, books since uh I did First Corinthians, but it doesn't touch on these areas. I guess Galatians, when I first went to Preston City, was the last time I really got into this. But there's this this whole new movement called the New Perspectives on Paul, and this is becoming a groundswell. Part my mentality is that when I first hear these things, I tend to dismiss them. What silliness! What nonsense! What a distraction! Why can't these people just teach the Bible? Well, we have to remember we're in angelic warfare and Satan is constantly coming up with new ways to attack the the doctrines of the scripture. And so this is one of those new things and what what their view is called is nomism, nomism from the Greek word nomos meaning the law. And part of the influence of this has uh, come from uh, the influence of some Old Testament scholarship, but the idea is you really can be saved by the works of the law. The Pharisees weren 't so bad uh, they were just misunderstood by Jesus. Wait a minute. Um, one of the proponents of this is a Anglican bishop. Uh, I'll call him by his uh, professional name, N.T. Wright. Everybody calls him Tom Wright, but we have a Tom Wright here that's not a heretic, at least not that I've discovered yet. So uh, we'll distinguish uh, N.T. Wright from our own Tom Wright. But he's a British Anglican, and he's influenced some doctrinal pastors to move away from dispensationalism, to move into areas of, of uh, a preterism even, to reject dispensationalism, to reject uh, the distinction between Israel and the church, to accept replacement theology, to go back into a, a works view of justification. N.T. Wright has a view of, uh, and others within this school have a view of justification that isn't legal or forensic justification. It is experiential. The justification isn't an instantaneous a declaration of the supreme court of heaven based on faith alone and Christ alone but it's a process and it takes place over time and the way you know you're justified is by your works there's another name for that i think it's roman catholicism that's that is a, it's a progressive view of justification and sanctification we won't get into enough of this by the time we get to the march Con- chafer conference But the March Chafer Conference is on sanctification, and that's one of the key areas in sanctification discussion is, what's the connection between the spiritual life and justification? Does a justified person necessarily have fruit, necessarily give evidence that he's justified by living the spiritual life to some degree? If the answer to that is yes, then your lordship at, at best, at worst, you want to go uh, be buddies with N.T. Wright. Uh, if you understand grace, you realize justification is distinct from sanctification. And though they uh, are are connected at some level because of the cross, uh, sanctification isn't like the old Keswick view postponed until you dedicate your life to Jesus or yield or walk an aisle or have a second act of grace. But it is uh, not. There is not a necessary uh, development of experiential sanctification or experiential growth uh, from the person who is justified. And these are extremely important uh, discussions today. Unless you think that somehow this is just some sort of pie in the sky theological abstraction that uh, that uh, seminary students get into. Uh, this is, at the very core, this is part of the distinction between a true free grace understanding of the gospel and covenant theology and reformed theology, which is inherently, inherently replacement theology and has, at a presuppositional level, at least the seeds of antisemitism. That doesn't mean they, those seeds flourish, doesn't mean those seeds gr- produce anything, but that's. The seeds of anti-Semitism within Christianity only grow in the soil of of, uh, replacement theology. And two weeks ago, if you read the uh, Marxist Chronicle produced here in Houston... Then you notice in their Thursday belief section, which is the worst tripe I've ever read. Always have to work hard to get back in fellowship after reading that little uh, that little section. But there was an article in there two weeks ago about the the Renaissance of Calvinism. I think they just discovered that. They, they did mention that it's been going on for about fifteen years, and they're right. But I think they just discovered it. Uh, but as a result of this, Calvinism has really taken off uh, in the last 15 or 20 years in terms of Reformed theology in two Reformed seminaries. A split-off from Westminster Seminary up in Philadelphia uh, named, called Redeemer Seminary is opening an adjunct ca- campus here in Houston this fall, and um, Reformed Seminary of Jackson, Mississippi has opened up a, uh, an adjunct campus here in Houston. Somebody asked me a few years ago why we didn 't move Chafer here I so said we can 't stand the competition. Every seminary's come to Houston now just about, and every denomination has a branch here, and they 're all fully accredited and enormously funded and they're the uh, they're the Goliaths and uh, uh, chafer just it 's very difficult to, to start a seminary in that kind of environment if you 're not accredited because the number one question we always get when people call. Uh, the school is are you accredited and when the answer is no they basically hang up maybe not literally but mentally they hang up because accreditation has been to, has become this monster today that it wasn't 40 years ago and if you, if you want to go into the military as a chaplain if you want to be a chaplain at a hospital if you want to go into any number of different ministries if you didn't get uh, your degree from an accredited school, which costs millions of dollars to get accreditation, it is the biggest racket uh, since the mafia in New York back in the in the 20s and 30s. Uh, it costs millions of dollars to get accredited and to stay accredited, and so there are just a lot of uh, uh, young men out there who want options in their in their ministry, and if you're not accredited, that just limits it uh, too much for them, so they don't even give you a. Uh, you know, a second look. Anyway, we'll get back next time and get into the uh, outline and overview of Romans and cover the whole uh, epistle in uh, our one-hour flyover. Father, thank you for this time to study these things this evening and to uh, be challenged by the truth of your word and your righteousness, knowing that we can never measure up to your righteousness. In the Old Testament, Isaiah said, All of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, that we cannot measure up no matter what we do. The only thing that can provide us with a solution is your grace. And in your grace, you provided a perfect solution. And as, as Isaiah also said, our sins would be made white as snow. And that can only happen as you uh, uh, credit to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then, then we are declared to be just. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things and that we would have a tremendous uh, desire and hunger to understand the message of Romans and to see it lived out in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.